You're listening to Trending with Timory, offering an eternal perspective on today's hottest topics. National speaker Timory Millington has been a passionate advocate for life as long as she can remember, helping Gen X through Z answer the call to true feminism and authentic manhood. Timory holds a master's degree in biblical theology, and she covers this week's hottest stories from a Catholic worldview. You're listening to Trending with Timory. Do I have a treat planned for you? So one of my favorite saints, someone who was key in my own formation, both as a little girl, he was still Pope, in fact, at the time, and now he's a saint, St. John Paul the Great. We're going to be talking about a little later on in the show. In fact, my guest a little later will be the author of the new book, 100 Ways JP2 Changed the world. And so we'll be talking about some of the ways he changed the world and kind of some of the incredible stories that the author has had in getting to meet the Pope multiple times. And just for how so many of us, St. John Paul the Great, through the intercession of the Holy Spirit and him working as Pope, really did change our lives and draw us deeper into our Catholic life, just like so many of the great saints have. So stay tuned. We'll be jumping into JP2. And again, that new book, 100 Ways JP2 Changed the World. I want to talk first about the pulse of what's going on with regard to abortion in relation to the coronavirus. And I know some people are kind of thinking like, why would we be talking about this right now? Don't you know that some states have shut down abortion clinics? In fact, maybe a lot of people are assuming that there are just no abortions being performed right now because it's not necessary health care. Uh, you would think that that would be the case. But unfortunately, there has been this major debate, both in terms of political parties, in terms of spending bills, but also from state to state over whether or not abortion is medically necessary health care right now in the midst of what they're saying is a very, very contagious coronavirus, COVID-19. And so, for example, I live in the state of California. You may have heard me mention this a number of times that unfortunately our governor here in California has insisted that abortion is just a basic essential health care. And so the doors to Planned Parenthood and other abortion clinics have remained open. And how heartbreaking is this? Because we are at a point in history when there is a lot of financial uncertainty. Uh, There are a lot of people who are home with additional time on their hands to maybe confront and think about challenging circumstances. And there's an organization such as Planned Parenthood and others who are advertising and preying on scare tactics right now to encourage and what I say actually manipulate women into thinking that their only option to survive is to have an abortion. And so what's happened is a lot of people have been standing up and speaking up because they're saying, no, abortion should not be available in my state, especially during the coronavirus. If they're saying it's as contagious as it is, if people are being as impacted as they are, why would we have more groups of people coming together uh, in such a facility as a Planned Parenthood for an abortion? It just seems unreasonable. And so since then, we've seen states such as Ohio, Iowa, Oklahoma, Alabama, in Texas outright shut down their abortion clinics in the entire state. Even here in California, last I checked, I think we had just about a dozen of Planned Parenthood facilities actually end up having to shut down until the end of April. 
hopefully that's longer. I hope these abortion clinics never reopen. Unfortunately, that's not going to be the case because I've, as I've mentioned before on trending, just like we've seen with the recession, just like we've seen even with World War II, when there are moments of crisis like this, when people are in their homes for longer periods of time, there's a baby boom. I'm telling you, they're going to be a bunch of little girls running around nine months from now. And some people are going to name those kids Corona because we know where they are all made. And Planned Parenthood is going to be more rigorous than ever because their bottom line has to do with selling more abortions. That's why they've become the leading provider of abortions. And they have intentionally created marketing campaigns for a greater incentive for abortion. And so you and I need to be really aware of the pulse of the culture with regard to the abortion issue. And I'm asking you, you know, we all have a little extra time and this only takes a couple minutes to go to protestpp.com. Again, that's protestpp.com. And they're really simple directions. In fact, even a little paragraph for what to do when you call your governor and other state governors asking them to shut down Planned Parenthood in their state in this current state of a national emergency because of COVID-19. So I'm asking you again, go to protestpp.com or you can find it on my Instagram or Twitter, protestpp.com. You can find me on Timmery. That's T-I-M-M-E-R-I-E. I have been posting updates about what's been going on here. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Trending with Timory. It's so great to be with all of you. Thanks for joining me and stay tuned. There's a big announcement about the radio show and podcast coming up a little later on this week. So be sure to join me um, by listening to those episodes. You can subscribe at radiotrending.com. Again, that's radiotrending.com for a big announcement we have coming up. So the next part of the story is this. Planned Parenthood is so upset over the abortion clinics that are closing in various states that they are now suing over the fact that Texas specifically has made it, the governor there has said that you should not be able to perform abortions along with other states. And so what's happening is, unfortunately, a judge has said that some of these states can continue to stay open and operate their abortion clinics and Planned Parenthood is suing because they believe that abortion is essential is essential health care. So I'm asking you, keep the pressure on, keep calling those governors. Again, go to protestpp.com because this is the reality of it. We need people, not just governor decision makers, not just the judges, but we need the people to understand this. And this is really important, that abortion is never medically necessary. Perhaps an early delivery might be, perhaps special attention might be, but abortion is never medically necessary. A woman who is pregnant and let's say it contracts, ends up finding out she has cancer. Sure, she could do a heroic thing and choose to forego receiving various chemos and other treatments for cancer until her baby's born because that would be safest for the child. But she could also choose to receive treatment while she was pregnant. Could that impact the child? Yes, it could. But does that justify killing the child? No, because that would put one person's life above the other. And we believe that we are called to love, respect, and protect both the mother and the child. And this is the approach that is had in hundreds upon hundreds of crisis pregnancy centers across this nation, that we are called to care for the mother and the child and the families and the other people involved in the crisis pregnancy situation. 
So another part we have to look at in light of abortion, the coronavirus, is that a lot of scare tactics are being used right now to coerce women into having abortions. Um, but there's also been this major rise that we've seen in do-it-yourself abortions. And I think that it's important to talk about right now when people are think being told by organizations like Planned Parenthood and other abortion rights advocates that women are really going to be manipulated and hurt and they are not receiving equal treatment because of the shutting down of some abortion clinics. We need to be willing to step up to talk about abortion more often to friends and family because although we've seen in a lot of the polling and statistics that the overall abortion numbers do seem to be going down in the United States. We've also seen, and the last real clear number we've had was in 2017 for abortion stats. We've also seen that there's been over a 25% increase in RU46 abortions. Now, those are um, what people will hear. You, you'll hear them call it um, like a medical abortion or a mifepristone or maybe a chemical abortion. These are a set of pills that you take at home on your own. Now, usually you should only do this type of abortion up to about eight weeks. Unfortunately, we're seeing abortion clinics and Planned Parenthoods who are doing this up to 10, 12, and even 16 weeks, twice the gestational age of that baby that they should be doing it. And it is even more impactful and harmful for both the baby and for the mother. And I'm sorry, but women deserve more than giving birth to a dead baby at home. Do you know what Planned Parenthood says to the girls when they give the RU46 at-home abortion pills to the girls? They say this, and I quote, flush don't look they say that because they know if that woman looks into that toilet when she passes along with a number of other blood clots a baby she will be traumatized for the rest of her life already by knowing that she has gone through with having an abortion but then to actually see that child this is why a lot of the states don't want women to see the ultrasounds of their children because statistics show that more than seven out of ten women who receive an ultrasound before going through an ab with an abortion process who are maybe abortion minded seven out of ten women keep their children that's again, seven out of 10 women. So people will ask me all the time, Timory, what do I need to do to intervene for someone who's maybe considering having an abortion? Here's some of the safest lines you could say. Let's make sure that you're healthy, that the pregnancy is going as it normally should. Let's get you in and do an ultrasound so that we can make sure that both you are healthy. And again, the pregnancy is going through as it should. Now I say pregnancy because that might help in softening the language. Maybe you say baby, depending on what the pulses of the situation, you should definitely be talking about the baby, of course. Um, but again, that might be a little bit softer language to help a woman who's in a crisis moment to let her know, I care about you. Let's make sure we see that you are doing okay. Now, of course, you want to help find a pro-life doctor so that there's no encouragement to have an abortion in moments such as these. We'll be back in just a minute talking about 100 ways how John Paul the Great changed the world. Don't go away. But first, a message about our sponsors. Solidarity HealthShare is simple to help pay for affordable, quality health care. They enable the community to share in each other's eligible medical expenses. You choose the doctors that you want to see. Even integrative and alternative medical treatments are eligible. 
Solidarity HealthShare helps pay for NAPRO technology and costs associated with natural family planning. Solidarity HealthShare is dedicated to both faith and your health care. Information is available at SolidarityHealthShare.org. That's SolidarityHealthShare.org. Timory will be right back. Send her a tweet at Timory. That's T-I-M-M-E-R-I-E. You're listening to Trending with Timory. And as we're looking at a hundred years of St. John Paul the Great's life, one of my favorite saints, really a patron saint for me and all the work that I've had the opportunity to do with theology of the body, I have with me today a dear friend. This is one of those moments where Facebook and Instagram become real because we've been Facebook and Instagram friends, buddies for years, like at least 10 years. I might have still been in high school possibly (laughs) too because I was doing pro-life work when we connected. So my guest is Patrick Novakoski. He's the author of the new book, 100 Ways John Paul II Changed the World. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. And we met in person at the <laughs> uh, the opening night, the Hollywood premiere of Unplanned. Of Unplanned. You know what's funny yeah. is I'm looking at you and I was so tired. I think it was close to midnight. The movie was so emotional to watch and part of me kind of felt like, how do we kind of have a pro-life party after this movie? <laughs> and it's great that we're all together, but it was a little intense and the music was so loud. I'm like, I know him. And I went, okay, I'm going to have to like yell over the music, but I'm looking at you and going, yeah. I don't even think you could hear me. And we're both going, I know you. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> that was really neat to kind of have one of those moments where friendships do come to reality. I know we diss social media sometimes on the show, but good friendships um, at times can flourish as well. It brings together people who are yeah, like-minded. Absolutely. So Patrick, you met a modern day saint yeah. multiple times and it's part of what inspired you to write this book. Absolutely. Share with us a little bit about getting to know the saint. Well, let me give you just a, and I'll make this less than a minute because the story is, is amazing. I, I won a trip to Mexico in 1987, 19, 1997. I won a trip to Mexico. I called the travel agent and I said, I don't want to go to Mexico. I want to go to Rome. Can I switch it? They said, yes. Oh. I was working for a religious order, Polish priests. And, and they said, well, since you're going to Rome, why don't you stay at our house there and, and do some work for us? And by the way, would you like to meet the Pope? Oh, my gosh. And my response was, do you need to ask? If there's a <laughs> list, just put me on it. So they put me on the list. And while I was in Rome, uh, I, I prayed to St. Therese because she went to Rome. She met the Pope. I said, please intercede for me. She did. And the prayer that I prayed to her was answered on the 100th anniversary of her death. Wow. I mean, literally 100 years to the day that she died, my prayer was answered. I got a call saying, you're going to see the Pope in the morning. I saw the Pope in the morning. Happened to be her feast day the next day. Wow. Talk about Providence. Providence. Yes. So I always knew that me getting to meet John Paul II wasn't just for me, that there was more that God wanted to do with those experiences. Right. And uh, so I saw John Paul. I met John Paul in 97, 98. In 99, I saw him, but I didn't physically touch him or talk to him. I was like, as far as I am away from the camera, almost. So you're kind of walking relic. Yeah, essentially. And then I saw him <laughs> again in 2000. Um, so five times I, I had interactions with him. Yeah. And, um, and, and that stayed with me. It shaped me. His teachings shaped, changed me 
over the course of my life. And then about a year ago, I realized that May of 2020 will be the 100th anniversary of his birth. Right. He would have been 100 years old. So, uh, and I'd been giving a talk for about 10 years on his legacy. I'd put together his top 10 gifts to the church. And I, I talked to publishers about that and they said, your story's good. Um, the top 10, those are good, but it's not quite enough for a book. And then it dawned on me this 100, could be 100 ways that he changed the world. I started writing the book July 1st and I finished it four months later after taking um, about a month break. So I wrote it in about three months. No book's easy to write. However, finding 100 ways that this phenomenal saint who, I mean, grew up during World War II and was in an underground seminary, saw the fall and rise of communism. Nazism before that. Nazism before that. And he had a tremendous influence on the world. Absolutely. And a unique perspective when addressing the world and grappling with the ideologies of the time. Absolutely. And the ideologies of our time, he he was always living in the future. He never lived in the past. Everything that he taught was for the future. He was always a step ahead of the culture. For instance, he wrote a book called Love and Responsibility, Mm -hmm. which was kind of the bedrock for for his theology of the body. In 1960, Mm -hmm. he was was about 10 years, well, five years ahead of the sexual revolution. Right. And a lot of people don't know this, but he is who influenced the church's teaching on contraception and Vitae because he was so consistent with the tradition of years of what the church had taught that... John Paul, or sorry, Pope Paul VI had to have seen this. And people say he may have been the ghostwriter behind Humana Vitae. I, I haven't heard that, but he was one of the most influential bishops at the, the Second Vatican Council between 1963 and 67, I think, when it right. ended. Um, and, and his influence in the council documents, his writing of the council documents, influenced Humana Vitae in, in a massive way. I wouldn't be surprised if he had vetted the document or given input right. to the document before it was released. Right. It's absolutely. certainly in line with everything that he taught. Yes, absolutely. And I know for me personally, just the theology of the body is something that I encountered in high school early on. And it has been one of the greatest gifts to the church. And I know this is one of the hundred things that you talk about. It's top 10 for yeah, sure. It's in the top 10 because even now he wasn't specifically talking to gender ideology, but there's so much fruit to bear from theology of the body for what's happening today. Day. Yeah. Yeah. When George Weigel wrote Witness to Hope, he said that it, that theology of the, of the body is like a theological time bomb that's set to go off sometime in the future, long after John Paul has passed into heaven. Well, it hasn't been that long and people are already using that time bomb. 15 years, 15 yeah. years since he died. Yeah. I mean, it's just phenomenal. I mean, we were talking about gender ideology on the show recently and how St. John Paul the Great discusses how marriage was that primordial sacrament. And that is so helpful for us in pointing to, well, what's wrong with same-sex marriage? Why is marriage so important? Well, God ordained from the beginning that that was the way he was going to communicate to us through the idea of marriage. The answers to all those questions are in our physical body and how God created male and female. All those answers are in our body and in, in, in just studying how the human person is created. And that's what John Paul unpacked. He, he unpacked it in, in a beautiful and thoughtful, uh, deeply theological way. And, and, and it's, it, it's being unpacked for us by people like Jason Everett, who, who write very beautifully on the theology of the body and, and, and other scholars. And there's still so much more.
That is Patrick Novakowski. He's the author of 100 Ways John Paul II Changed the World. The book will be released on the anniversary of his death here, April 2nd. April 2nd. So in your book, one of the top 10 that you originally had been speaking about when you travel was the new evangelization. Absolutely. Matter of fact, spoiler alert, it's number one. And the reason for that is that the church exists to evangelize. Mm -hmm. Paul VI said this very clearly in the 1960s. I think it was, he he said it anyway, that the church exists to evangelize. The first thing that Jesus said in his public ministry was come and see. It's the invitation. The, The last thing he said was go out and make disciples of all the world, the great commission and baptize them. So, John Paul II recognized that the church exists to evangelize, and he put a big spotlight on that. And he recognized that the church hasn't always been effective in in its evangelical mission. And he he everything that he did, everything that he said, everything from World Youth Day to theology of the body was pointing toward the new evangelization, toward getting people in right relationship with Jesus Christ. Well, even just the way he traveled, and we've talked a lot about this, no other human being traveled the way that this Pope traveled and saw the large groups of people that he saw. Certainly. He was seen live in person more by more people than anyone who ever existed. When I look at even some of the stories where people will share about how, you know, maybe he was back in Poland and he'd be sitting with the window open talking to the people, you know, the ways that he engaged. It also is a reminder to us. He used distinctly who he was to engage with the people around him. He didn't try to be someone else. He was a people person. He had a love and respect for things such as marriage. And he really used these gifts and these loves and desires to evangelize the world. Absolutely. Absolutely. So another one that I want to touch on, and I didn't get to read this part of the book, is what do you have to say about his love for sports and athleticism? <laughs> John Paul, as a child, had a nickname Lolek. That was his, it was like Chuck, right? And and he played soccer with the, the kids in his neighborhood. Usually he was the goalie, and usually he was playing on the team of, of the Jewish kids from his neighborhood. So through that experience, he, he gained a love of sports, a love of the outdoors, um, and, and also a love of the Jewish people, which is another part of the book. So, you know, as he got older, he loved to hike and he even did this as, as Pope. Yeah, one, one of the, the neat secrets that his personal secretary wrote in his book was that as Pope, he snuck out of the Vatican more than a hundred times to go skiing and hiking with his closest aides. And one time, this, this is a story that's not in my book, but it's, it's a st- one that I read. Um, he was on a ski hill someplace in, in Italy and a little boy saw him and, and said to his mother, Mom, that's the Pope. That's the Holy Father. And she went, nah, couldn't be. Well, his, his friends, the priests and bishops that he was with, kind of grabbed them and got him out of there real quick. <laughs> <laughs> Before the mobs came. But the child recognized him, which I thought was really cool. What do you hope to accomplish with this book? Because there's always a calling when we write something. I know you really love the book, but why are you wanting to give this to the people? Well, kids that are graduating from high school right now don't have any experience of growing up with John Paul. Mm -hmm. They they have seven years of Francis, and then before that, my math isn't so good, uh, six years of Pope Benedict. So they were, maybe they were born when John Paul was very, very old. 
but wouldn't remember that. So what I'm hoping is that young people will discover John Paul II and that people who did grow up with him will rediscover him and learn so much more about him. We'll be right back here on Trending with Timory with Patrick. You can listen to more of Trending via the podcast on iTunes or the iHeartRadio app, where you can share your favorite episodes. You're listening to Trending with Timory, where morality and culture meet, offering an eternal perspective on today's hottest topics. My guest, Patrick Novikovsky, the author of 100 Ways John Paul II Changed the World, is here with me. And I was asking him, why did you write this book? And one of the things that stood out to me, Patrick, is sometimes I'll be giving a talk, especially to young people, and I'll mention, for example, St. Mother Teresa or St. JP2, and I have to share with them who they are because they have no idea that there was a living, breathing saint around when they were born and they changed the world. And so yeah. this is part of what inspired you to write your book. Yeah, absolutely. So my my oldest son is 16, almost 17, and he was just a baby when John Paul died. So he has no real context for this pope and his influence on the world, how he, he revolutionized the papacy, but he also revolutionized the church. Mm-hmm. He brought the church. He, he really unpacked the Second Vatican Council, which is another one of my top 10 um, ways that he changed the world. But people who are, or, you know, in their early 20s and teens really have no context for John Paul. He's an ancient guy. It was like that was in the 70s and 80s, right? But um, so I'm, I'm hoping that with this book, they'll read it and they'll, they'll get a deep appreciation of who he was. But also for people who did grow up with John Paul, they watched him on the news, they watched him on TV, they maybe saw him at World Youth Day or, or in person in Rome during an audience. For, for them to really understand the, the depth and the breadth of his influence on the world. When I started writing this book, I had 10 ways that he changed the world that I'd been giving in a talk. Uh, I expanded that to about 50, and then I started writing. And as I wrote, I started developing the 100, mm-hmm. and I probably could have written 150. There were so many, and in ways that I, I had no idea that like his influence on China, his evangelical yeah. outreach to China, every time he went to North Korea, he would broadcast into China in Chinese, telling the Chinese people about Jesus and trying to evangelize them. He had outreach to Beijing on a diplomatic level um, that was unprecedented. And, and very few people, few people in the West really know about that. Yeah. Well, um, and I forgot until you just said it. I remember knowing this when I was younger and being in awe over it. He knew many languages. Right. I right. can't remember how many, but he knew many. And me not being a linguist at all. I mean, learning another language has always been difficult for he me. He was fluent in about 16 or 17 yes. languages. Some people say 18, um, but he could communicate in up to 64 languages. When he would give his Irby at Orby uh, address on on. Christmas, I think it's Christmas where we gave that the the address. Um, he would give greetings in sixty four languages. Up until the year before he died, he was giving that greeting in sixty four languages. Now he didn't he wasn't fluent in them, but he he knew bits and pieces of that many languages mm-hmm. that he could at least read it and and give the the, the address. 
we're not called to be comfortable. And I think that that's something I see when you really do read the story of St. John Paul the Great, because the man suffered. I mean, if you read his story, a lot of people think, wow, this was a saint. He was Pope. He did great things. They don't realize where he came from. So when you read his full story, you realize this is someone who, again, is being himself in the midst of evangelizing. And he's trying and he's come out of all of this discomfort and he's choosing to live this life that is so extroverted in ways when he had every right in a sense to kind of be one of those quiet popes who, you yeah. know, studied and released some documents. Most popes through history were very quiet. They stayed in the Vatican. Yeah, but that but wasn't him. He knew that evangelization was key. And and what powered John Paul II was his prayer life. He His prayer life gave him the ability to... God worked through him because he had a deep mystical connection with God. His prayer life was extraordinary. That's That could be a whole other book, and I'm sure it is. But one thing that, that really shaped John Paul was tragedy. When he was nine years old, his mother died. When he was a teenager, his brother died. His brother was, I think, 10, 15 years older. His brother was a doctor. He died of an illness. They were very close. And when he was almost 21, his father died, mm-hmm. and he was left an orphan. And, and his father was deeply prayerful. His father was a military man. So he learned discipline and self-discipline from his father. He learned, you know, his, his regimented prayer life. Even kneeling his father. down. I love the stories where he talks about right. watching his father kneel. Yeah, he, would, he would wake up in the night and see his father kneeling at his bed in prayer mm-hmm. and how formative that was for him. Um, and after his father died, that's when he decided not to become an actor, but to become a priest. Mm-hmm. So through the tragedy, he allowed God to, to shape him through tragedy and be the gift to the world that he was. That's Patrick Novikoski, the author of 100 Ways JP2 Changed the World. The book is already available for pre-order on Amazon. We'll post links in the show notes if you head over to radiotrending.com. Patrick, three of the things that stood out to me, and they're in the top, but I think that they're very closely related. And when I say the top at the beginning of the book is his emphasis on free will Mm. um, that I see there. As we talk about, and and here's where I see it, in religious liberty, Mm -hmm. dying with dignity, and the end times. Now, people might say, well, his position on death with dignity, you know, dying with dignity isn't the way we would think of free will, but we're going to dive into that a little bit. Sure. So he really helped the world to understand that religious liberty had to go beyond the four walls of the church and the home. Absolutely. Freedom of conscience. Um, he He was a big proponent of... And, and he saw this with, with Nazism, with communism, that people were forced to think a certain way. He understood that God, shaped, God, God gave us freedom, ultimate freedom, to make a choice for God or against God. And that should never be forced. We should never force someone to believe a certain way or to think a certain way, but should allow them the, the freedom to make their own decision. But at the same time, we're not to be shy about preaching the gospel. Because that's that's key to who we are as Christians. But at the same time, that was key to to his his teaching for sure. Yeah. Well, and one of the things that stands out to me when we talk about religious freedom, if we really do stand by religious freedom, we also have to respect the free agency of other people. So maybe we have friends or family members who we disagree with on the way they're living, you know, their sexual relationships, their marriages. Maybe, you know, we even disagree with ourselves ask this question and it's kind of a paraphrase of what he would ask many people who he counseled. He never tell them what to do. We always hear, he'd say, so what are you going to do? You know, they'd Mm -hmm. share and they'd share and they'd share and he'd look at them and say, what are you going to do? 
And I think that that's something we can do. We can share and help others and try to guide them. But ultimately, we need to help them understand it's in your hands. You have the control to change the course of this outcome. Absolutely. Absolutely. And and the, the example that we give by living our faith in a, in a loving and dynamic way is is the best way to evangelize. So share with us a little bit about his position on dying with dignity. Sure. He modeled that. I think for those of us who saw the last several years of his life, mm-hmm. he broke his hip, I think it was about 10 years before he died. Yeah. And then from that point on, his physical health deteriorated um, gradually year by year to a point where his, his Parkinson's got the best of him. He wasn't able to speak in the last several weeks of his life. And, and you know, the news captured this very well of John Paul II trying to speak and not being able to, um, and, and his frailty. So he modeled for us what it means to, to, to carry the burden of old age. One of the, the beautiful things that he wrote in the last several years of his life was a letter to the elderly mm-hmm. and, and how he, John Paul was a very healthy, robust young man. And even as Pope elected at 58 years old, he was very dynamic. He, yeah. he, he was skiing, yeah. you know, well into his seventies. So with, with those last years of suffering, public suffering, he got great empathy for people who are elderly, people who are disabled. And he wrote this beautiful letter to them saying that I now understand you at a much deeper level. And, and I understand and I empathize with, with what you're going through because now that I am old, I'm going through it as well. Mm. And it's such a testimony in the midst of a culture that is pro what they call, quote unquote, death with dignity, dying on your own sure. terms, you know, which is euthanasia, physician assisted suicide in our country, you know, lethal doses of medication. There is a beauty and honor that we are called to give the human person as they're going through their death and an influence that they have on us. I remember I think I was 13 when he died and I remember seeing televised masses before that watching this beautiful man with his head tipped sideways, who's a public figure. I mean, I think even maybe drooling. And yet there was this power and strength and um, just a gift he was giving to us by continuing to be there. One of the other things he said was that elderly people give us younger people the opportunity to, to minister to them, to, Mm -hmm. to be their, their, their nurses and their aides and their helpers. And that is a great witness to us that we're able to, to give that service and that love to, to them and how that's, uh, that shapes us as, as caregivers. I love that. And it's a reminder to us, even as we start to maybe experience older family members, especially even family members that aren't necessarily parents, but people who never had children, right. you know, finding the level of responsibility and respect we can show them as they begin to travel through their elderly years. Yeah. And key to all of his teaching was the inherent dignity of each and every human person. Mm-hmm. I wrote a chapter on humanism, which is essentially that each individual human person is unique and unrepeatable and and carries such great dignity that we are to respect that to the highest degree. And yeah. in, in, in that was that was woven through everything, including theology of the body. And if I look at one of the things that probably I learned the most from JP2 that underlies all of his work, everything he did is what does dignity mean? Hmm. Why does the person have value? And that is so important in the midst of the sexual revolution, the abortion movement, the gender ideology movement that we are able to respond to. Yeah. 
And, well, it's because we have a soul that lives on forever. Right. You know, and, and that, that there's a, a spark of God in us, right. that, that we were created not for ourselves, but for God. And, and that, that's where our dignity comes from. From, from the fact that God created us for himself. Yeah, to be with him. I and mean, he didn't have to create us. He chose to yeah. create us. It was an absolute act of love that we're called to enter back into by being with him forever. That is Patrick Novikoski, again, the author of 100 Ways, JP2 Changed the World. You can order it on Amazon, pre-order it. Please don't miss this book. It will be a great tabletop book, great for young people to begin to learn about JP2. Timory will be right back. Send her a tweet at Timory. That's T-I-M-M-E-R-I-E. You're listening to Trending with Timory. I am back with Patrick Novikoski. He is the author of 100 Ways JP2, John Paul II, Changed the World. We're coming up on the 100th anniversary of his birth and also the anniversary of his death, April 2nd. So very timely book. Thank you. Thank you. Now, again, I was saying earlier, this man significantly changed my life in the theology of the body. It is from the theology of the body that I really felt my calling to go beyond working in the pro-life movement, but to dive into the underlying causes Mm. of what was going on. That was the wounds we have in terms of sexuality. Right. And I mentioned earlier, I'm amazed by how JP2 continues to be a great um, bearer of truth when speaking into the issue of gender ideology, Mm -hmm. because he spoke a lot about femininity and masculinity at their core. Absolutely. So what are some of the takeaways for you when you're looking at theology of the body or maybe some of his other works? Because I know you were very intimately involved in reading. Favorite document, favorite key takeaway? Oh, gosh. I think my favorite is his last book, Memory and Identity. It was, it was based on a series of interviews and it was published literally two months before he died. And it was very, a very intimate, personal chat, essentially, with John Paul II, where he talked about his influences and how he was trying to influence the world. And uh, so that's one of my treasures. I also have a signed copy of his book of poetry, which was um, a great gift. So I cannot wait to pick some of that up one time. Yeah. I've never had the opportunity to read some of po- his poetry other than seeing maybe a, a snippet here and there on social media. So he was a playwright. He was also, right. you know, he wrote plays as a young man. He wrote some as well, some, some poetry into his papacy. Not a lot of it was published until later in his papacy and then after his papacy. But his poetry isn't, it's not light. It's very heavy. It's very dense. It yeah. has a lot to do with, with, um, with death, he talks a little bit about his mother, the sacraments, nature. Those are kind of some of his muses. So it, it's interesting. It, it, I don't think it translates well from Polish. I, I was in 1999, I was in Poland and um, I, I was working for the Marians of the Immaculate Conception. And the, the Holy Father was in Poland to bless the, a shrine that they had built uh, in central Poland. And I got to stay in the same property as the Pope overnight. And when he arrived, wow. he arrived in his Pope mobile and I was one of the only lay people there. So he was surrounded by 125, 150 priests, all Pol- mostly all Polish speaking, um, a few from the United States who, who didn't know much Polish. But I got this great picture of him leaning out the Pope mobile window 
on his arm and he's chatting back and forth with him and he's smiling and he cracked jokes and I, w I was asking my friend so what did he say what did he say he said oh it's just a play on words and and he repeated it and he said it's funny in polish but it doesn't translate well so some of his poetry is the same way it's it's in polish it kind of flows and rhymes a little bit but in english it it, it doesn't but you can still capture the, the depth of what he was trying to get to in a lot of it. Patrick, you are incredibly blessed to have these experiences. I mean, come on, didn't JP2 maybe recognize, okay, he's not a priest. Can we see, you know, single you out at all in any of this? Well, so people ask me that. Yeah. So Because I, I, I literally had three private audiences with him and then two interactions in, in St. Peter's Square. So people say, well, did he recognize you? I don't think he did. But, but they the, say that's one of his gifts. The interesting thing, though, is his personal secretary, who's now Cardinal Jeevish, was uh, at the time, it was his personal secretary. He recognized me each and every time. Wow. So I, I was really impressed by that. But maybe the Pope recognized me. I'm, I'm not sure. Wow. I, don't, I don't think he did. What a neat opportunity. One of the topics you bring up in the book, number 95, is the end times. Right. And I don't think I had really looked at JP2's work where he's commented on it before. And so it really stood out to me, especially because he spoke as if we are in the end times now. Yeah. Now, this means a lot considering that it is a pope. And I don't like to discuss the end times as a scare tactic. I feel that a lot of people do because uh, we should always be living as if it were the end times. This is what, you know, the early church thought that Jesus' second coming was going to be any day now and it would right. all be over. Uh, but he turns to people such as um, St. Faustina and right. her Divine Mercy Chaplet and all of her works pointing to like this could be right now and I feel like he was given to the church to help prepare us for right. this. Well, so was Faustina. So um, I look at it this way. The end times is either when you take your last breath or when you see Jesus coming in the clouds. Mm -hmm. One of those two, whichever comes first, that's the end times for us as individuals. Yeah. When Jesus appeared to Faustina in, in the 1930s, he said to her, I want you to prepare the world for my second coming. No small task. So John Paul was instrumental in authenticating the messages that Jesus gave to St. Faustina. And, and that was as Archbishop Cardinal of Krakow. So end times. He wrote a little bit about end times, but it's certainly part of, of what he was trying to do is to, again, the divine mercy message, preparing the world yeah. for, for the second coming, for the end of the world. And you might want to read this because you, you've got the text up there. I don't. But in 1976... He gave a, a talk yes, I wanted to talk at, at a that. Eucharistic Congress in Philadelphia, and he mentioned the end times. Now, I was able to authenticate that he actually said this. The Wall Street Journal published it in 1976. So go ahead and read a little bit what he said. You know, I'll just kind of paraphrase here, because one of the things that stood out is he talks about this confrontation that the church is going through. And he realizes, he says, now we are now facing the final confrontation between the church and, and the anti-church of the gospel versus the anti-gospel between Christ and the anti-Christ. If this isn't more prevalent right now in our culture, look at gender ideology. Look mm -hmm. at the heated debate over politics. I mean, look at we were briefly mentioned, you know, the hatred people have for one another over vaccinations even. Like we could point to very simple things. Right. And yet people aren't even associating with each other anymore. If this doesn't show this anti-church, this anti-crisis, anti-Christianity, 
what does? I think ultimately it comes down to truth. You know, if we recognize truth, do you remember the scene in The Passion of the Christ where um, Pontius, Pilate. Pontius Pilate says to, to Claudia, do you recognize truth when you hear it? And she said, well, of course. He says, I don't. And I think we're in that, that culture today where you either recognize truth as being truth or it's your truth, my truth. Mm-hmm. There is no your truth, my truth. There is the truth. And Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is the truth. So if we recognize truth, then, then we recognize Christ. And, and that's a game changer right there. So I think one of the big cultural things is that people are disconnected from truth. Mm-hmm. They, they don't believe that there is real truth anymore. It's just opinion. Everything's yeah. opinion. And it's hard because it's not just external truths. They're intrinsic truths, exactly. truths written into our very own body that people are just outright rejecting. And, you know, we were talking recently on the show about how we're facing an unaffirmed generation, a generation that was not affirmed. Right. And how I think part of that is because they were not affirmed. You are good as you are. And that is something that JP2 has been so good at teaching us and I think preparing us for the cultural battle that we're in right now so that we're not just going to look at our opponent as the enemy. We're going to look at our opponent as someone who does not know that they are truly loved because of whatever circumstances, whether it's lack of religion or breakdown in the family or whatever it might have been in their past. Exactly. Yeah. No question. Tell me, end times is another one, another key takeaway from the book for me in looking at the thing overall. Again, I said this in the introduction. There are so many ways where he has influenced culture, Catholicism, even non-Catholics. I remember meeting someone not too long ago talking about, you know, they're saying, well, what do you do? And I said, well, I talk a lot about the church's teaching on sexuality. Mm. And I said, oh, interesting. And I said, well, you know, from what viewpoint? And, you know, it always depends on who you're talking to, maybe what you're inspired to say. And I said, well, do you know anything about JP2? And they go, oh, I've read biographies on him. I love that man. If someone who's not even Catholic can say that, there's something more to the influence that he has had than we realize. You know, one of my early influences was was Billy Graham. Mm. Um, when when I was a child and Billy Graham crusades would come on TV, you wouldn't really see the Pope on TV unless he was, you know, in your country. Right. You know, but Billy Graham's crusades were broadcast all over the world. I grew up in Canada, even in Canada that his crusades were on regularly. My mother would have us sit down in front of the TV and watch it. So John Paul II, when he met Billy Graham for the first time, they, they, they had a long chat and then the Pope grabbed his thumb and said, we are brothers. And it was a kind of a breakthrough right. moment. Even right now, we're, we're at the, the campus of the Christ Cathedral. Right. And Dr. Schuler, who founded this place, he met John Paul II. John Paul II blessed the plans, the designs for this campus like 30 years ago, 40 years ago, 40 years ago. Wow, I and didn't know that. Yeah, he blessed, the, Dr. Schuler went to the Vatican and the Pope blessed the plans for this campus. And here we are now broadcasting from the Tower of Hope Catholic Radio. Yeah, and and this campus for uh, up until just five years ago 
was not a Catholic place. Yeah, yep. Yeah, the Diocese of Bada. And even people like Venerable Fulton Sheen. Fulton I mean, Sheen was, was here, here on this on property. This campus. I mean, yeah. it is phenomenal. And the campus has been such a gift to this area. I mean, we have Father Robert Spitzer in the Magis Center above us. We have Dynamic Catholic. We have so many ministries here present. And look at how JP2 foreordained he this had, He place. had a hand in, in yeah. where we are right now. And the fact that this is a Catholic campus. Okay, I always say saints chase us down and we need to pay attention to what saints are chasing us down. Now, a living saint chased you down. And I can tell you, JP2 chased me down in his own way as well. So it's a challenge to everyone. Which saint is maybe piquing your interest? Is it JP2? Are you interested in reading the book, A Hundred Ways JP2 Changed the World? Please check it out on Amazon. Patrick Novakowski, the author, is my guest. Patrick, where can people find you? They can find me at novamedia.us or my website, patrickwrites.com. So you'll find all those links at radiotrending.com. This has been Trending with Timory. To book her to speak or learn more about her guest, visit radiotrending.com. That's radiotrending.com. You can listen to more of Trending via the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or the iHeartRadio app, where you can share your favorite episodes. 